Welcome back once again to the Lynx Golf Podcast. I'm Al Lunsford, the digital editor of Lynx. Joe Passoff joins me once again as my co-host. Joe, how are you doing in blistery Arizona today? Yeah, as always, uh, we're uh, July 1st. It's a little warm out here, but Al, doing fine. Well, good. Well, I hope this conversation, well, it might it might heat you up a little bit and get excited talking about all the strange things that have happened to in the open championship over the years. In fact, the kind of inspiration for our conversation in our summer issue, we we've done this uh, feature called photo finish in the past year or so of links where we show a, maybe a photo that some have seen before, but likely many have never seen uh, and provide a little bit of explanation because the photo is, it's kind of odd, as particularly in this instance, uh, there's an an elderly, an older woman uh, stepping out of a car that appears to be stuck in some sort of ditch. And actually, uh, I can read the description here. It says she needed hazard lights, and it's about uh, this woman driving her car into a bunker on the old course, where it says the old course is not known as a particularly stern test of driving, but during the 1975 Walker Cup match, at least one lady had trouble steering clear of those bunkers, and the result was a vexing side hill lie on hole number four. Uh, Ironically, for someone in need of help, she was a first aid worker. Uh, The madam and her beached Vauxhall Viva eventually were given a free drop, while the U.S. team, led by Curtis Strange, Jerry Payton, Craig Stadler, won the match 15.5 to 8.5. So that all said, this this woman drove her car into a bunker on the old old course. Uh, strange but true happening there at the home of golf, which inspired Joe and I to think about all the strange but true things that have happened at St. Andrews around the old course, uh, whether that be moments during the Open Championship or just general facts and figures that are kind of odd, but in fact, truths. Joe, I think, you know, this is kind of easier for you to pluck these out of your memory. You've got a, a great historical uh, Rolodex memory of these kind of things. So I was excited to, to hear what you'd come up with and what you decided to share in this conversation. Well, thank you, Al. I do have a bit of a treasure trove of useless information stored <laughs> up in my cranium. And uh, But it's fun to talk about sometimes because not every moment at an Open Championship is a great moment. Sometimes there are odd things, unusual things that happen, and we got to celebrate those as well. Um, yes, go to your summer issue of Lynx Magazine, folks. Look at this incredible photo of this woman who drove into a bunker at the fourth hall on the old course. Uh, now, in her defense, it was a blind bunker. So you know, at least bear that in mind. But uh, Al, so many funny, comical, and also tragic things have happened in Open Championships over the years. And we felt, hey, it's summer. Let's share them with everybody, right? Right. And uh, if you're a reader of Lynx Magazine or lynxmagazine.com, you may come across some of the things we talk about. Uh, We have a piece on the biggest meltdowns at Open Championships over the years. We've had a greatest moments piece, and we've talked about uh, some of these things in the past, different 
facts are on the old course, lesser known things. So uh, a bit of this will be maybe a refresher uh, or just a reminder to some people of everything around the Open Championship, around the old course. But we thought it'd be fun to just kind of run through some of this, these comical and like you said, tragic in many cases, things that have happened over the years. So I think maybe we start with some of those moments that have kind of left us scratching our heads a bit, Joe. What what are some of those that stick out in your mind? Well, there are definite head scratchers in the list that we've compiled, Al. And, uh, you know, again, uh, some of them revolve around great play and some of them are just aspects of of life that happen okay al without question the head scratcher one of the head scratchers of all time was this playing by the rules not knowing the rules not really sure but um you know here's here's what we have uh the golfer's name was harry bradshaw the tournament was 1949. We were playing at Royal St. George's in England. And uh, henceforth, it was known as the broken beer bottle shot. So what was going on? Well, a cloud of judgment certainly was going on with Harry Bradshaw. The Irishman led the Open with a first round 68 that year. And he led off round two with four straight fours, very respectable start in round two. At the par four fifth, Bradshaw sliced his drive into the rough where it somehow lodged into the base of a broken beer bottle, unsure of how to proceed under the rules and unwilling to wait for an official, Bradshaw hacked away at the bottle, shutting his eyes at impact. He shattered the glass and advanced the ball roughly 25 yards. Clearly unnerved, Bradshaw double bogeyed the hole on his way to a 77. He admitted later that it took him half of the remaining holes in that round to regain his composure. That was unfortunate as he wound up tying Bobby Locke for the title, but was demolished in the 36-hole playoff. A beer and a shot proved Bradshaw's unlucky undoing. I yeah, I you see all the time when people have their their shots land in odd places, a spectator's chair. Uh, there's a, a video from the Open Championship from a few years back where they uh, showed some strange and funny moments. Uh, player an Aussie, David Graham, hit it into a spectator shopping bag. Of course, he was given free relief from that. But in 1949, like you said, Harry Bradshaw just decided to go ahead and play it as it lied in the in the beer bottle. Uh, and it's unfortunately for him something that may have cost him the Open Championship overall. Because, like you said, he went on to lose in a playoff after that had happened. So some of these are not as consequential as what poor Harry Bradshaw went through. Yep. That was, uh, of course, leading off the list. I mean, with one of the most famous incidents of all time. And uh, we know now that he would get relief, but uh, the situation was a little more clouded as was his judgment in the heat of a tournament. And, um, you know, poor Harry. Well, another really interesting moment that, you know, it didn't, 
ultimately cause you could say there was plenty of the tournament left uh, to go when this happened because it was in the third round in 1991. But uh, an item from your list that I did some reading on too was Richard Boxall in 1991 uh, was playing well, three shots off the lead uh, when he swung so hard at Royal Burkdale on the ninth tee that he heard a snap and had broken his leg during play at the open championship. Uh, unfortunately for him, that would cause him to have to withdraw. Uh, as you can imagine, he wouldn't play again for another 10 months after that. Uh, but had a good sense of humor about it. Uh, this quote from him saying, it's amazing. The extremes you'll go to not play with Colin Montgomery. Yeah. His playing partner in that round and uh, spectators and Montgomery heard the audible crack and Boxall, who's a uh, popular broadcaster uh, for golf across the pond these days, uh, described it later, uh, the sound of like a sack of potatoes splitting. Oh God. <laughs> so, you know, I mean, it's, it was consequential because he wasn't that far off the lead and uh, to have something so horrible happen. Golf is not a game like football uh, where you have, uh, sickening injuries occur as a, as a way of the game. Um, this was extremely unusual, really unfortunate. But uh, in our podcast today, we salute Richard Boxall for a strange but true open memory. Gosh, can you imagine? Just It makes you think immediately of Tiger at Torrey. Can you imagine if there was a moment like that where there was a significant sack of potatoes pop on that telecast i mean <laughs> that would have gone down as one of the all-time i mean it already is an all-time performance and we know now that he was had some fractures he was dealing with but not a straight break like mr boxel exactly right al we've got uh We've got physical injuries uh, on our list. Uh, I think we've, we've covered them well. Uh, there are also strange but true moments that um, kind of uh, blows to the ego, if you will. And, uh, and, and sometimes they're, they're overcome with a little um, thoughtfulness. And uh, that happened to the immortal Bobby Jones in 1926. So Bobby Jones was in the thick of it after three rounds of the Open Championship in 1926 at Royal Lytham in St. Anne's. But uh, back in the day, they played two rounds in the final day. Third and fourth round would conclude um, all at once. And so after his morning round, he decided that he did not want to face all the commotion of eating in the player's dining room at the club, which was pretty much standard procedure. So. He went into town and decided he would grab a quiet lunch in town and then come back for the final round. Well, when he arrived back on, at the golf course, he had his player's credential, but that wasn't enough for the security guard who had no clue that he would be confronted with a player trying to get back into the tournament or into the tournament in the first place. The security guard is looking for spectator badges. 
Well, whether he had his players pass or not, it may he may have left it at the hotel as one other anecdote goes. Jones decided the only way he was going to get back in and win this championship was if he went and bought a spectator's ticket. And that's exactly what he did. So he went to the booth, paid his money, became a member of the paying public, and that security guard led him back into the grounds. Remarkably, Jones went on to win the championship. So he had to pay for a ticket to get in as if he was a fan just to get back to the first tee. And I think I read he was, what, one shot off the lead at that point? I remember he was in the thick of it. And, um, you know, hey, I'm Bobby Jones. Come on. But uh, no go. That security guard, and we know those types, a little overzealous for what's going on. And uh, and Jones somehow had the, you know, the, the measure of his mind. Well, I got to get in somehow. And that's just what he did. Well, thank goodness, because he went on to win, right? <laughs> he sure did. <laughs> well, maybe not quite as strange, but I think we'd be remiss if we didn't talk about John Vandeveld in the Open Championship. And what an awfully unfortunate just collapse on the 18th hole in Carnoustie in 1999. It, it just appeared that he could quite simply win that year, just needing a double bogey at that point to win the Open. But that's not exactly what happened, is it, Joe? Uh, it sure isn't. And you know, historians are going to look at back at this and, you know, we're approaching 25 years now. It's been 23. One of the hardest setups in the history of major championship golf at Carnoustie that year. If you will, a rogue superintendent decided they're not going to chop up my course. And uh, the, the scores were among the highest in, in, in a generation or two. But one guy figured out how to play it and, and executed brilliantly. And, and it was a journeyman Frenchman named Jean Vandeveld, uh, who had won once on tour. Uh, but I, I mean, he did outplay the rest of the field for 71 holes. And as you mentioned, Al, he came to the 72nd hole simply needing a double bogey to win the title. Admittedly, Carnoustie's 18th hole is a tough one. Double bogeys strewn all over folks' cards before and since. And I think what historians and golf fans will debate is what did Vandeville, was he one of the most unlucky golfers? Did he get one of the worst breaks that's ever happened? Or was he just so clouded by the moment that he made some of the dumbest decisions of all time? Curtis Strange broadcasting that year for ABC, you know, claimed that what he saw unfold was the stupidest thing he had ever seen on a golf course. But others will come back and say he just got incredibly unlucky. I mean, think about standing there and knowing you need a six as a professional player. Uh, you know, why not just hit a couple of irons, a couple of clubs you know won't end up in, in the situations that he found himself in but but gosh it's 
that will live on as probably the most well-known uh, choke in in the history of the Open Championship, but maybe even professional golf. Yeah, exactly. Uh, the, the greatest meltdown in in any major championship, uh, you know, many would say. So here's what happened. You know, just to refresh and review, at the 72nd tee, Vandeveld held a three-shot lead. Perhaps foolishly, he chose a driver. Many critics, as you and I have just discussed, felt that two layups would have given him the best chance to avoid the twisting water hazard, the Barry burn, uh, that affected play on the first and second shots. Really hard par four, 500-yard par four. Well, he flared his driver well to the right, but found an acceptable lie in the rough. It was so far right, it missed the burn. Um, a shot of 185 yards would clear the burn. And then it was comedy and tragedy all rolled into one. Instead of laying up in front of the burn, he ripped a two iron thinking he'd hit it on or near the green. And that even if he pushed it into the grandstand, he would be entitled to a free drop one nowhere near the water. Instead, that two iron, unfortunately, hit a grandstand railing and doinked, as our friend Chris Berman would say, it went backwards across the water into really dense rough. So think about that. If he had just hit into the grandstand fully, he would have had a free, comfortable drop. Instead, it hit the railing went way back into some of the deepest rough on the course. And uh, he tried a pitch shot. That thick grass strangled his club head, and he dumped the ball into the water. Famously, of course, he waded into the hazard, contemplating playing the shot from the water. Eventually, he took a drop, wound up making a triple bogey seven, and credit to Jean Vandeveld for having the nerve to hole a seven-foot putt for that triple bogey seven. So, yeah, he made the playoff, but lost to Paul Lawry. And um, again, bad decision making or just a terrible break. It's still perhaps the strangest and yet truest open memory of all time. Just a perfect storm of going from bad to worse throughout that that hole. Um, gosh, I didn't know that the, he had just caught a a doink, as you said, off the grandstand into, into some trouble and, and wow, to make a seven footer to get into the playoff after all of that is wild, but, uh, yeah, unfortunately he, he couldn't pull it out in the playoff after that. Understandably, probably pretty rattled after what had transpired there on the 72nd hole. Joe, I, I know you had another two or three things listed here where you can't believe your eyes when you're watching some of these uh, mishaps happen. Uh, Hale Irwin, Greg Norman, and Tommy Nakajima. Uh, I'd love to hear what you have to say about what happened to those three guys because uh, it's a bit shocking to see these world-class players make the simplest kind of mistakes that anyone can make on a golf course. For sure. 
And these are three pretty quick items, but they were incredibly influential in the way the tournaments wound up. You know, starting with Greg Norman, uh, you know, that guy uh, was so star-crossed in major championships. Whatever we think about him now, back then, I mean, he was a world number one player. And it's almost impossible to think he didn't win more than two major championships because he had so much talent. One of the major championships he did win, the second of the two open championships that he won, was in 1993 at Royal St. George's. A fantastic leaderboard. I mean, most of the golf's top names were fighting it out down the stretch, but Norman pulled ahead with a phenomenal final round 64. However, it's Greg Norman, and weird things always happen to Greg Norman in major championships. And that 64 was kind of pockmarked, if you will. On the 71st hole, the 17th hole of his round, he wound up missing what some describe as an 18-inch putt. Other accounts had it as two and a half feet, but it was a little tiddler, a tiny putt, as he's trying to wrap up this Open Championship. He three-putted from 25 feet, and whether it was from 18 inches, two feet, or two and a half feet, it was a stunning miss in an otherwise incredible round. Hats off to Greg. On that moment, he did get his claret jug for the second time. Two others, however, were not so fortunate in the heat of the battle. The first one you alluded to was Hale Irwin. 1983, uh, we're going back to Royal Birkdale. Uh, this was in the third round. He was playing the 14th hole. And uh, at that time, I believe he was tied for the lead with Tom Watson. So as a lot of the tour pros used to do, we don't see it as much anymore. He had a tiny little tap in. By some accounts, it was literally two inches. By other accounts, six inches. But it was a classic tap in in the leather. And he went up and did the backhand swipe. Used the back of the putter to knock the rest of the putt in. Only he didn't swipe and hit the ball. He whiffed. Missed it entirely, stubbed it, and then went up and over it. Okay, it's absolutely bizarre and confidence-shattering, perhaps. Well, Irwin acknowledged it was just an absolutely stupid mistake. All right, you know what? After four rounds of golf ended at the 1983 Open Championship, Hale Irwin lost to Tom Watson by one shot. Wonder how much Haler when today still thinks of missing from about three inches at a putt that could have given him golf's oldest major. Yeah. In how many times inconsequentially do you think about just playing a normal round with some buddies and you've got to tap in like that and maybe you just wrap it with the opposite side of the putter it misses or it goes in, but you're not really thinking about it. And this is, something that Hale Irwin did in a major championship and completely missed. I mean, you got to think he's after doing that, maybe not in the moment. I'm sure he's like, I can't believe I just did that and probably moved on. But then once the tournament ends and you win, you lose by a single shot, it has to be all you're thinking about for quite some time. 
absolutely. I mean, uh, Hale did win three U.S. Opens and had an incredible career in every other respect. But, you know, to think about a major that got away, yeah, a bunch of them did, but not in this fashion. It's not just one shot that decides a tournament, obviously, but you like to have that one back if you're Hale. No question about it. So there was one other you alluded to and kind of one of my favorites, which is the 1978 Open Championship. Jack Nicklaus, of course, won again at St. Andrews. But in the third round, Japan's Tommy Nakajima, fabulous player, tremendous champion on their tour and won some significant titles elsewhere. And he was playing great in this Open Championship. Third round, he arrived at the road hole, the 17th hole, one shot off the lead, very much in the hunt. And what an achievement. He hit the green in two. Not everybody does that on one of Earth's toughest par fours. Unfortunately for Tommy, you got to get the ball in the hole to have a successful score on the road hole. And he didn't for quite a while. Instead, he putted off the green into the road bunker, the bunker fronting the green that is so deep and vast, it has its own camera position in the sod wall for every tournament that is televised. Well, he got stuck in the road hole bunker, took him four shots to get out, made a nine, and that ended his chances at the Open Championship that year. Uh, For a while, the road hole bunker had its name changed to the Sands of Nakajima. And Tommy wasn't done with that in major championships. A couple years later, he was playing at Augusta. You think the nine at St. Andrews was bad? Well, playing the famous par five 13th hole at Augusta, Tommy Nakajima made a record score of 13 at Augusta. So between St. Andrews and Augusta, two of Earth's most famous golf courses, Tommy Nakajima achieved the infamous feats of a nine at the road hole and a 13 at Augusta's 13th. That's one way to put yourself in the history books, I guess. Uh, if you if you're not going to win it, you might as well uh, be remembered for something else that happened at one of these tournaments. Like you said, infamously, uh, but still, we we know the name because of how egregious and in, insane these high scores on a couple of the golf's most famous holes happened in the biggest tournaments in the world. Uh, Joe, I had found one more that was kind of interesting, and I don't. I don't recall if you had mentioned this one to me or not, uh, but scrolling through my research, one of the the odd things that happened in 1921, uh, a golfer by the name of Roger Weatherid, uh, he got a penalty because he hit his ball with his foot, forcing him to, to drop into a tie uh, with an, uh, natu- a natural a player by the name of Jock Hutchinson. So they had to go into one of those 36-hole playoffs after this uh, penalty was occurred. The player, Roger Weatherard, who hit the ball with his foot, went on to lose in that playoff by nine shots. And the the interesting thing about uh, Jock Hutchinson 
from all of this was he was born in England, but he was a naturalized citizen of the U.S. So he actually became the first American winner of the Open after all of this had occurred in 1921. And there was I, absolutely, and, and Roger Weathered, a terrific player. He was the brother of one of the greatest women golfers of all time, Joyce Weathered. Uh, so perhaps he was all, even overshadowed by his sister back in the day. Um, <clears throat> Bobby Jones thought Joyce Weathered's golf swing was the best ever um, at pretty high praise, basically. Wow. But yeah, that 1921 Open Championship at St. Andrews, well, there was another incident that happened at that same tournament that kind of overshadowed what happened between Weathered and Jock Hutchison, which is... Bobby Jones himself played a lousy 10th hole in the third round and then went to the 11th, uh, the par three along the Eden River there and chopped that up terribly and said, I've had enough. He had a pretty good temper in those days. And from whatever accounts, he literally tore up his scorecard. Maybe he figuratively tore it up, but he walked in and quit the championship. So you know, although that was a, a, a bad break uh, for Weather to actually, you know, hit the ball of uh, his foot, make contact and everything else. Um, people remember Bobby Jones tearing up his scorecard and walking in from that 1921 Open at St. Andrews. That's right. I had forgotten that that was the same year that that had happened because uh, you and I had talked about that at one point. But S strange but true. Something was in in the air in 1921. <laughs> I'll uh, I'll end on a lighter note amongst the strange happenings moments here. Uh, before, if you have another one to another story to tell, but looking back and and trying to find some of these things, just thought this was the funniest amongst the bunch. But Peter Jacobson in 1985, and you can watch this on that video I referenced uh, from the Open Championships. YouTube page, but Royal St. George's playing on the 72nd green. It's not the last time this happened, but we had a streaker run on the green and rather than letting the security officials take care of it, Peter Jacobson decided to take things into his own hands and forum tackled this streaker, uh, successfully took him down and, and handled business himself. It's just a, a funny little incident that uh, people will always remember who were there, I'm sure, at Royal St. George's. Well, Jake was matter-of-fact about the incident, Al. Uh, he was quoted at the time saying, he was about to run across the line of my shot. I put my shoulder in where it hurt the most. <laughs> so... You know, uh, that he did. He was looked like a middle linebacker. Uh, absolutely. Uh, and, and as I uh, said, thinking about it a few years later, that was uh, just another version of golf skins game. <laughs> well, people will also remember when John Daly won the Open Championship, there's a great picture of him hugging and kissing his wife and a streaker in the background running wild. But Joe, do you have any uh, any more moments that need mentioning here? You know, Al, there's definitely others, but 
uh, ending on that note, I think, is the perfect way to depart this topic. So there are a couple of facts and figures that I think are worth noting that are kind of strange but true things as well. And Joe, I know you you know all of these things, but uh, speaking specifically uh, towards the history of the tournament, the oldest winner of all time, old Tom Morris, won at the age of 46 years, three months, 10 days. It just so happens that the youngest winner of all time was his son, young Tom Morris, 17 years, five months, and eight days. So the oldest and youngest winner of this oldest major championship are in the same family, father and son. Yeah, I, I don't see anybody ever breaking young Tom Morris's record for, for being the youngest winner. But uh, still one of the things that, as a sports fan, haunts me today was the oldest record should have been broken by Tom Watson back in 2009 at age 59 was with within one bad bounce or club selection or something of winning that tournament at age 59. So yeah, hats off to old Tom, but uh, old Tom Watson uh, should have broken that record that year. The Claret Jug, as many know, is one of the most famous, if not the most famous trophy in the game. Uh, but it wasn't the original trophy at the Open Championship. Uh, the first dozen years of the Open, when it was played at Prestwick, the winner was given a red Moroccan leather belt with silver clasps. It's called the Challenge Belt. And that belt, I think, is still there in the, the RNA uh, in on display. Occasionally, I've seen it one of the winners rocking the belt uh, in championship photos after they've won the tournament. But another interesting weird thing that goes back to young Tom Morris involving that is that young Tom won four consecutive open championships from 1868 to 1872. And under their original rules, for whatever reason, they decided if someone wins the tournament three years in a row, hey, you get to keep the belt. You earned it. So he won three times in a row before winning a fourth again. And since he did, he got to keep the belt. That meant there was nothing for the winner to win in 1871. So they decided, hey, you know what? We don't have a trophy, no tournament this year. I mean, that kind of blows my mind that they staked the entire event on hey we can't find you know a, we can't make a medal or do something to give to somebody so we'll just wait until next time when we've come up with a trophy you know al uh things were a bit weird in the 19th century as regards <laughs> the open championship um you know, so Tom, young Tom became a fashion plate, had his, had his new, uh, nice, wide, attractive belt. But uh, yeah, we don't have anything to give the winner. So um, we'll see you next year. And, uh, you know, it's crazy. But I mean, just a few years later, 1876 at St. Andrews, Bob Martin and David Strath tied for the title. But there was doubt over the procedure to be adopted for a playoff. 
And there was also a call for stress disqualification over a technicality. The decision was delayed and Strath was so insulted by all of this that he refused to play off. And the uh, Bob Martin was awarded the title by default. So I don't think cooler heads were prevailing at that point in time around the, the leaders of uh, the governing body behind the open championship because they just couldn't, you know, make it happen. Things that, uh... We, we had some wacky incidents uh, during the 20th century and a, and a couple into the 21st century, but the 19th century seemed to be full of them. The last strange thing I wanted to mention that it's not really to do with the Open Championship so much as it is the old course at St. Andrews. We have a, a video coming out on five lesser known things, things you may not have known about the old course and one of the points that was made from our friends at Cookie Jar Golf that produced the video was the 18th green at St. Andrews. Um, in 1866, I believe, when they were rebuilding that 18th green, a massive grave site was found underneath the site of that green. Um, it was built to... Uh, store the bodies of cholera victims in the town of St. Andrews. Uh, so they found all these bodies underneath the 18th green and went ahead with construction. Those bodies are still there lying under the 18th green. So any weird, odd things that happened there at the 18th at St. Andrews uh, may have something spiritual to do with that, if you believe in that kind of thing. Well, Al, we have seen enough non-traditional plays at the 18th green over the years from Doug Sanders missing the three, three and a half footer that cost him the open championship in 1970 to Costantino Roca knocking one in from down in the Valley of sin from 65 feet. I mean, there are strange and miraculous things that happen on that green. And now we know why because it's uh, a spiritual, perhaps haunted spot in the world of golf. Maybe the last thing I'll mention, too, is one thing that isn't haunting Tiger Woods. Back in his 2000 victory, when uh, he won, how many strokes was it that he won by? By eight at the eight. Open Championship, yeah, after winning at the U.S. Open by 15 remarkable remarkable things but maybe not quite as remarkable as going all week not hitting into a single one of the old courses 112 bunkers a strange and impossible it would seem thing to do but was true of, of tiger woods's brilliant performance yeah that's one thing that we know to be true is the golf that Tiger was playing in the year 2000 probably has never been, the likes of it has never been seen before or since. And to cap it off after a, that kind of win at Pebble Beach and to dominate St. Andrew's old course so thoroughly, again, golf clap for Tiger because that's as good as golf as can be played. I'm quite sure that we're not done with the the weird and wacky moments at the open championship. So that remains to be seen. Anything else to speak of Joe that we may have missed? 
No, I mean, I'm looking forward so much to a great tournament coming up. But without question, one thing we know for sure, it's going to yield a moment or two that will be strange but true for golf fans and historians to celebrate forever. And we cannot wait. So thanks again, Joe. And on to the Open at St. Andrews. On to the Open, Alex.